0: Welcome to the R&J Yarn, Ron and I's podcast, which is all about interviewing people who are making important contributions within our community. Our goal is to have a relaxed yarn with our guests, where we find out what shaped them to become the person they are today. Listen out for our weekly episodes released each Monday. Ron, welcome to episode four. It's mid-December and less than two weeks to
1: Christmas. How's your week? Jimmy, thanks for asking. I'm going well. Uni just finished for me this year, so I'm focused on my part-time job and been spending a bit of time down at Phillip Island and, of course, working on our podcast, Jim.
0: Yes, we have been working hard,
1: mate.
0: I reckon by this time next week we'll be over that mid-December hump of work at work and social events
1: in our non-podcast lives. Things will
0: be winding down a bit. And so, Jimmy,
1: will you be able to get home to New Zealand for Christmas? Sadly not, Ron.
0: Fortress New Zealand continues. So I'm going to have a Melbourne Christmas. It is really sad not to see my folks, sisters, nieces and nephews in Wellington. But, mate, look on the bright side. I'll get to the Boxing Day test and do some day trips around Victoria. And honestly, I cannot wait for that feeling of forgetting what day of the week it is.
1: Well, Jimmy, that's an awesome take on it and it's, you know, they're lucky to have you and I'm sure they'll be sad not to see you. Um, On today's interview, it's our first in-person interview and I'm a Melbourne local, but I've actually never been to this place, Armadale Cellars.
0: I haven't been either, Ron, but I must admit I did a few of their Zoom wine tastings over lockdown. So today our guest is the owner of Armadale Cellars, Phil Hude. And we will be meeting down in the wine cellar of his high street store.
1: Yeah, Jimmy, it's going to be a great chart. Phil's an expert in the wine industry. We will cover his recommendations for food pairings, best wine tours, and even get Christmas um, day drink recommendations. Sounds interesting,
0: doesn't it? I'm most looking forward to hearing his take on starting a business in something you love, turning your passion into a business, which is a bit like what we're doing, mate.
1: Okay, Jim, let's have a chat to Phil and we'll have a chat after. Welcome to another episode of the R&J Yarn. This week, Jimmy and I are sitting in a cellar in Armadale, surrounding us, the stories of passionate winemakers, which have each been hand-selected over a lifetime by owner and managing director of Armadale Cellars, Phil Hugh. Phil's collection here is made up of over a thousand different wines. His selection of wines is so important to him that he makes it essential to plan at least one overseas trip a year to discover the finest <laughs> wines available. Um, Phil's story, however, didn't begin here. Phil's passion for the industry began working in a pub as a young adult where he became a keen beer lover and then as he aged his interest transitioned into wine where he found himself visiting numerous local wineries where he then decided to enrol at Roseworthy College in South Australia to attain a diploma in winemaking. Returning back to Melbourne, Phil took over a then struggling wine business in Armadale where he then transformed into what is now regarded as one of Melbourne's most premium wine tasting venues. Phil is a prime example of hard work with great lessons for anyone who has a dream to pursue their hobby as their career. Phil, it's an absolute honour to have you on the show today. Thanks, guys. Um, how's your week been?
2: Uh, as always, very, very <laughs> hectic and full of uh, lots of uh, Venice pleasure.
1: Well, what we'd like to start with, Phil, is
0: just some quick, sort of quick questions, just sure. some quick fire things. And so we thought with yourself we'd do like underrated, overrated in terms of wine varieties, <laughs> or drink varieties, really. So we'll yeah. start off with rosé. <laughs> underrated
2: overrated yeah or something else what a great what what a great question to start off and uh, how topical and how uh, how much it could be shot down by people i love if i go the wrong way but i, I sort of think with wines and even varietals or styles of wine I, I like to think them like my children i love them all um but there are times when you know they don't suit me or they uh you know they're, they're difficult um but um yeah rose i i would never have believed it would have the um come back that it did and, you know obviously when i was a young adult 20 30 years ago um rosé was a sort of sweet sugary confectionery terrible thing and mm-hmm. now there's a lot of dry savory gorgeous stuff coming out um it's not something i drink lots of personally but i you know love you know i do like rosé when it's applicable and have had rosé in portugal and uh, spain and places where it seems really applicable in the south of france mm-hmm. so um <laughs> uh, you know is it overrated Possibly at this stage, I think people pay ridiculous amounts for yeah. rose where it's not that complex, but it's an interesting style.
0: New Zealand's favourite, I'm a New Zealander fellows might pick mm. up, but Pinot,
2: <laughs> Pinot Noir. I uh, love Pinot Noir. I think uh, for me, Burgundy, you know, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are my probably two favourite and um, you know, it's possibly overrated in the sense that people pay ridiculous amounts for it and I'm guilty of having, you know, spent um, you know, some of my profits disgracefully on um, incredibly expensive bottles just to find the Holy Grail. I think Pinot is the Holy Grail. It's sort of, you know, once you get seduced by great Pinot, it's uh, it's, it's it's there's a reason why wine is a drug, and um, Pinot is almost the ultimate pleasure if you find the right one at the right time with the right people with the right food.
0: Mm, okay, now talking of spending a lot of money, mm. what about if we go down the um, the pub down the road there and order to pint of Stone and Wood Pacifica?
2: Yeah, that'd be fine. That'd be a good cleanser. There'd be nothing wrong with that. And uh, I'd have no fear with that. I mean, um, uh, funny, you know, some of those things in the introductory, you know, I'd almost qualify. I mean, you know, I wasn't a true beer lover, to be honest, but I had to love beer because that was part of my repertoire in pubs is, would you believe, every Friday I would have my brief would be go down and shout, um, you know, pots of beer to people who are good customers in the public bar. Uh, of this enormous pub that I managed uh, in Preston in the northern suburbs. And I'd have to drink ponies, which are 40 mil little little glasses. And I'd, had a, I'd have about, you know, God knows how many, 50 or 100 ponies. So, um, <laughs> you know, but the beer was very average 20, 30 years ago, I thought, selection-wise in Australia. Now it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. And Stonerwood's a good example of, you know, good craft beer.
0: Okay. Uh, one I was struggling to uh, pronounce was uh, Beaujolais, Cur Beaujolais. Yeah.
2: Beaujolais, again, had you know, the mother of all comebacks just recently and uh, I think partly because Pinot Noir slash Burgundy has become extortionate. And Beaujolais, which you know, normally is Gamay as uh, a grape varietal, and Gamay is almost like a substitutable Pinot varietal, let's say, um, just in its quality of aromatic and, and uh, delivery on the palate. Um, so it has, you know, Beaujolais has become incredibly popular. We import our own Beaujolais. Um, into the country, but a brand, uh, Domain to Collette. And, uh, yeah, now it's become incredibly popular and I think it's gaining probably the recognition it should have. It was always ghastly, horrible stuff 30 years ago when Beaujolais Nouveau reigned supreme. So for us, our next section
1: of the mm. quick follow, we thought we'd give you some different meals. Yes. And yeah. you'd kind of just give us a wine that you kind of pair with it. Excellent. Yeah. So we thought, at, as you can see, I'm so so we, thought we'd, <laughs> <laughs> we thought we'd start with an easy one. So what would, what would you match with a porterhouse steak?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, robust reds are always on the on the menu for porterhouses and, uh, you know, so a good Shiraz from Australia or, you know, I'd probably prefer a good Syrah from um, the Rhone. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I think anything robust, American's Infidel, um, you know, there's a number of uh, probably contenders there. Now,
1: this one might be a bit more tricky. What mm. would you pair with, say, salmon?
2: Yeah, salmon's a good one because uh, mm. I like salmon um, and... Uh, you know, I think it's it's a really versatile food um, style to match with wine in terms of you know I think white or red. So uh, we could go Chardonnay, we could go Pinot, uh, we could go Gamay, we could go. You know, there's probably a, a myriad of that could match depending on their uh, focus um, in terms of the palate structure and flavour profile. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very versatile food group, salmon, to be able to uh, apply to wine. There's there's probably and again depending on what dressing or what condiments or other stuff. With the salmon,
1: obviously. Now, this next one: mm. say you had you had a hard day at work, and you yep, just wanted a quick you wanted a quick dinner, yeah. And you decided to go to the local kebab shop and sure. get a get a falafel kebab that for some un- random that would, reason. No, no, no. no what that's... what what would you pair with with a falafel kebab? Can you pair yeah. something with that? Or yeah,
2: I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I think um I think there's some really good sort of easy drink style reds. Let's say like a. Pikes Tempranillo Shiraz. It's called Los Companeros, which means the companions. um, Yeah, which is fantastic for uh, just an easy drink style with you know something like that with the falafel um, would be awesome. And um, you know just the drinkability and glug ability and wash down aspect and and the quickness of having a falafel with the with that sort of uh, and and you know it's a cheap it's a sort of sub twenty dollar wine which you know in Armidale is inexpensive. We never use the word cheap. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: what about if you want on a Macca's run? Yep. And you just wanna quickly swing by um, the sales to get something you could pick up on the way, maybe. Yep. What would you kind of have with your, your quarter pounder and, and chips? Right.
2: Yeah. Well, many years <laughs> it's about a quarter pounder and chips, but I, I still remember them. And um yeah, I think again, you know, a sort of fun drinkability red style would be great. So uh you know, I hate to get Shiraz like a wild duck creek yellow have a hill or mm-hmm. um you know, it would be awesome. Sure with Shiraz Melbeck and uh you know, there's some uh great you know but and again, that sort of fattiness within you know, matters is sort of obvious and you've got to have something fairly robust to match it, otherwise you'll get lost in the the sea of fat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, nice. Mm. Next
2: one,
0: okay. Mm. And then we a few
2: favourites. So sure.
0: favourite winery visited?
2: Yeah, that's a really tough one because uh, I'm, yeah, well, I shouldn't say I'm fortunate. I work very hard to make sure, as you did discuss, that's true. I'm one of the few people who can probably boast that last year I spent a month in Europe. Um, So I spent all of February, just before everything went crazy with the pandemic, um, in Europe and um, we went to a wine conference in Paris, it was just timing, and got out late February but um, I I work very hard to make sure I go to visit suppliers and or discover new wineries and so you sort of realise when you go outside Australia and you see the wealth of Europe and you know it's been there for hundreds of years and they've put that maybe into an estate, Mm -hmm. you know and you think about I see a winery like here at Levantine Hill in the Ara Valley where the Gerasati family have spent untold money, um, you know, creating an incredible thing by the, you know, um, Costa Fendolini's guys who, you know, did Mona and then built Levantine Hill in the Ara Valley. And it's a, it's a fantastic ornament to wine in the Ara Valley and, uh, and will leave a great legacy, but you see things in Europe that are just mind boggling in terms of the, the glamour and the stature and the, um, style of you know especially the obvious ones of the chateaus in bordeaux and um you know the champagne you know mm. which again has resurrected itself because a lot of those places were devastated just, yeah. you know, during war
0: okay mm. what about another favorite and yeah. this is sort of related but yep. favorite if if we were going on a wine tour mm. what would be your risk if we're only one wine tour in our lives to a region i'm talking about to a region yes which region would you recommend going yeah <laughs>
2: God, that's so hard. That's, that's a very yeah, hard one. I mean, <laughs> if, it's only, if it's only one we can't go anywhere outside it, um, I mean, for me, Burgundy. Um, and just because it's uh, got glamour and, you know, I love Pinot and Chardonnay and I just think the uh, intricacies between all the, um, you know, Cote de Bois, Cote de Bone, et cetera, is just amazing. and um you know you're not that far from <laughs> Chablis and Champagne and Alsace so yeah he says knowingly we haven't done that haven't done that sort of trio in, in many times
0: okay uh and last one mm. uh what's so it's you know 12.01 p.m on Christmas day mm. what's your first drink of the
2: day I uh, would have had one by then for okay. sure. But, okay. um, <laughs> yeah, it's 901. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I really love the uh, Aussie thing of uh, of uh, sparkling Shiraz on Christmas Day. Um, and, you know, usually it's it's batched to roast turkey, which is not really Australian. It's more American. But, um, you know, uh, I quite often try to have it. I mean, to be honest, virtually every Christmas Day in the past decade, I can think of I've done a champagne as the first drink of the day um, with my family. And, um, you know, so that that would be normal just it's almost like a celebratory because for me to get to christmas day is like the marathon ending because um, you know retail's so full-on mm. and so you know it's the celebratory aspect of champagne to say my god we made it and i'm still here mm. and uh, so that's that's you know that's the good <laughs> part so
1: about 23 years ago you took over the armadale sellers business mm. Do you want to maybe tell our listeners a bit about what sort of the state the business was in back then And and some key sort of things that you did to kind of build it into what it is today—a thriving, you know, one of Melbourne's best sort of wine tasting locations and shops.
2: Yeah, so a couple of couple of slight, just big. I'm being. uh, I know you're not here, but uh, one is, sorry, uh, 24 years, 25, yeah. next year. We <laughs> yeah. oh, to brush right. off in no, our No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 everyone's lost a year due to pandemics. That's, that's not. Yeah. But the, Last uh, year didn't count. Exactly right. But, um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, you know, arguably next year is my 25th year of operation, mm. but and in September it will be the anniversary of our 25th year. Um, Here, I was under my guise um and also i didn't i'd studied wine marketing which yes did have wine making and viticulture and marketing and in those days in roseworthy it was a very rounded course so i feel vindicated that i sort of learned a lot about um wine making, wine production wine um viticulture and marketing um it was a very rounded course now if you do wine marketing it's very puristic sales and marketing at six years thank god i did it when i did because i don't think six years at uni would have done my head in but um looked, loved it um Go backwards uh what what did i i bought this place yes because it was pretty run down and um it was sort of a sad story the guy that had it um who bought it only for about a year or so previous had bought um, a very complicated different importation style business relied on someone in the business to help him who you know um i'm not sure it all sort of gelled very well and then he had a a really um terrible problem with one of his kids uh developed a blood cancer and he had to put a lot of efforts into that and took his focus off the business and something that I've learned obviously over the 25-year journey and I've had had Emerson flow even in my own personal life and the ability to be able to focus on business is as a small business operator it's so tough and you wear many hats and the argument is that you know let's say there's eight or ten different things that you need to be very good at you know sales, marketing, um, you know, finance, um, you know, there's so many, you know, all different sort of hats you need to wear. You may be good as a person, three or four out of the 10, but there's always six or seven you need to rely on other people with. And mm. so I think that I've been extremely fortunate that over the journey, I've met some amazing people who have come to work for me. Um, and I realised nothing's forever, but at the same time, um, you know, I've had some very incredible long tenures of 10 and 15 years of different staff, some that are still here and, you um, you know, and that, that's pleasing, um, gives the place and myself stability. Um, but there were, you know, were sections in the history of the business that were, you know, very rocky. And, of course, you know, we saw the GFC hit, you know, and that was pretty tough for us. Um, and, um, you know, took me to the brink almost, I mean, in terms of a tough business because I'd expanded the business and took my focus off the real prize, which was retail. And Anyway, there's all these million stories. But it was uh, the things that I did, I think, early days, um, I was obsessed with building the database in terms of I would make sure I learned everything about anyone who walked in. Mm. And and I I basically made it a relationship style business. So I have absolutely no doubt the reason I sit here nearly 25 years later um, is that those relationships I developed was simply because I wanted to um, take care of the customers that bought in. I wanted to uh, make sure that they knew that I had credibility because I'd studied, I loved wine, I was passionate about it, and I, I love I love selling. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm almost one of those few people. I think Richard Richard Branson tweeted, you know, not that long ago, that three percent of people get up in the morning and love what they do. I mm. reckon I'm part of that. Mm. And um, you know, reality dictates that. Yeah, you know, I love selling. I love wine. I'm I'm you know, literally the pig in the in the uh, Pen, let's call it and um you know I, I love what i do because um and so I, I took notes of all debtors of you know clients debtors It sounds a bit uh mm-hmm. financial doesn't it but mm-hmm. i took notes of all customers and i you know i made sure i remembered their you know wife's name who they buried for mm-hmm. you know all the things that mattered so that and that was all put on the database which was exhaustive but it meant mm-hmm. that i had recall if mm-hmm. they came back in you know, I try and quickly look them up and say, you know, mm. hi, Morris. How, you know, do you North Melbourne? McGregor. So when, when you
1: say the database, is that kind of like you have like a spreadsheet that you actually would write yeah. notes on, or is that just in your head? Or, oh no, no, we had. <laughs> we, a
2: bit of both. I, I bought this part of what I bought yeah. was an intricate system, which was ah. I've still got. It's like a nineteen fifties wow. Ferrari, um, because it's sort of very old. It was a DOS based system, and they converted it to a yeah. Windows based system in the end. But um, you know, it's it's got a lot of. Uh, <laughs> It's a bit clunky, but yeah, we still we've, we've mm-hmm. learned to love it like a wicked stepsister. And it's a it's a basically a sort of a, it's not really a CRM, but it's like a it's a, it's it's where you can make notes on all your clients uh-huh. and you know all the details. And one trick I did employ was, uh, and I still have it today to some extent, is that in my office I have you know um, CCTV mm-hmm. um, in most of the shop, and and obviously I can watch. Not that I sit there watching the CCTV, but. I can see who comes in and my guys are briefed to say, you know, if there's an important VIP customer who, you know, is known to me and the store, they will Skype me internally and say, you know, Phil, you know, 10365, which, you know, then I look up and realise it's, you know, you know, Maurice Spat or someone, you know, who cares, has come into the building. And so for me then I, you know, can look up what he bought last time and I can wander out and see, you know, remember all the things about, uh, him and his family and anything mm. I've written down, and and people love that because and again it's not I don't think that's trickery I think for me that's mm. I mean yeah there's only so much you can remember and take mm. on mm. Um, but I think people love the fact that you show a care factor and and that, that mm. that's reality and that
1: that's your edge because anyone can go to you know any yeah. of the other stores we won't name because sure. they're our enemies but. Sure. Um, the difference between going to any sort of independent business is if they offer that customer service. Like I work in a pharmacy now. Competitors yep. like chemist warehouse. Yep. But what we really focus on is getting to our customers, um, offering them the extra services, like you know, getting their blood pressure or whatever. Correct. Um, but that's that's all you can really do, isn't it? Because it's so Absolutely. hard to kind of you can't compete on price. Well, um, it's it's not
2: possible. The, it's yeah. The one thing I distinctly mm. learnt in. Um, I took out from some of the marketing subjects, so we did competitive strategy mm. um, you know, in marketing, which was one of the subjects, and uh, they used used to use the um, books um, from Michael Porter, who was a mm. um, you know terrific competitive strategy writer, and you know I don't know exactly when he was around, but it would have been probably the fifties or sixties. I don't know. And um, long story short, he um, he used to have this theory that in marketing you are either a differentiator and you differentiate by, you know, different things, you know, um, service, like I said, or um, um, and, and uh, add-ons offers different things, uh, or you're basically um, the biggest of the best and you're, you know, and you're, you're allowing for price. So the problem is, um, and so he used to say that if you weren't a differentiator or a you know cost leader, you were basically stuck in the middle. I made a promise to myself not to be stuck in the middle. So we differentiate by having wine courses, by having wine dinners, by having wine tastings, by offering a really distinct wine offering that's different to a normal bottle shop. I consider myself a wine merchant, you know, which yeah. sounds a bit wanky, but yeah, yeah, yeah. um, it's not. I mean, it's it's me, me saying, well, you know, we're giving you not just the general base level of Maslow's hierarchy of wine, <laughs> let's call it, which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we don't give you the standard stuff. We build on it till you get this... Self actualization of you know how much you love wine and how much we can take because mm. there's so much, so many levels you can go to with wine.
0: So, mm. and so we're going to get into some good wine questions in a second. Mm. But say if you like Ron and I, we love coffee. Yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about coffee, different sure. different milks, different yeah. different like um, blends of coffee, I guess, yeah. tea mixes and things. What would what would your advice be to to people who are thinking? You've got a passion in something. In your case, it was wine. Yep. And you decided to make a business of
2: it. Yeah. What a, a, when you look back now. It's a great question. Um, uh, I've got many people i would followed over the journey, you know, who I admire for what they've done marketing-wise, etc. And uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's an American, um, who's very renowned for – he started, like I did, in a wine business. He was working for his father, who was the manager of a store and then ended up being the owner and took it to some ungodly – um. Regime, you know, took it from a three or four million dollar business to a $40, 50 million dollar business mm-hmm. um, by by being the early adopter of um, of uh, social media in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he, you know, writes. He's written books on social media, scores of books, but also you now he's like a uh, PR type, and it's frightful money. Um, long story short, um, too many long stories. Is that um, you know? I think from those people, I learned distinctly that, and he used to quite often say, if you're if you're doing what is for you a passion you're halfway there because mm-hmm. um you know you're going to not worry about the time and effort and uh i mean for me you know what is work and what is playing like i go out tonight to mm-hmm. see my mate who's you know um a finalist in this australian pino challenge and you know <laughs> sure i'll see lots of mates at in the industry and and we'll have you know lots of fun yeah, and no there'll be lots of food lots of wine um but in the end i suppose i'm still working and that's why it is really hard. You never turn off. I mean, you know, it's uh, mm. so. The advice would be, you know, consume literally and metaphorically your passion in terms of let it let it soak into your whole life. I mean, I you know I never have a holiday, it's the only place I can possibly relax is like Fiji because you know, they don't have that many wines. but one, one, <laughs> yeah. one good wine shop on one side of the island. Guess why I found that. And um, <laughs> but you know, otherwise it's not. You know, it hasn't got great amount of wine. So unless I go to there or Iceland or you know the Antarctic, <laughs> I'm going to struggle not to end up being soaking in what I do because you know people if, I, if they know I'm coming to an area they'll say oh you must you must come over and have dinner and then it gets <laughs> you end up fifty five wines later. So maybe just tell us. Mm. So let's
0: get into like the business here and the training mm. the training business you run. Mm. What sort of what sort of courses do you offer? And look, I suppose perhaps rather than just cataloging it. Maybe just say like, what are people wanting?
2: Like, what are you chunks to demand, and why do people come in and? Yep. Do that? Where we sit now in the cellar, and you can see that we've set half the table, so we can do this podcast. But um, tomorrow night we'll have this cellar full of people who'll look at twelve different uh, Shiraz slash Syrah, um from around the world, or mainly mainly Australia, New Zealand, and um, the odd entrant from France, etc. And we'll put Grange there, which is considered our, you know most famous wine and it's it's horribly expensive. You don't get to drink Grange every week unless you're Phil <laughs> and your host Adam, and I'll sell the strange challenges. But I reckon I drink more Grange than most Penfolds red winemakers. But um you know people pay me to do that and then we talk about the wines. We do them blind, which means people don't know what they are. And um, you know, it's a it's a very uh it's, it's a structured forum, but it's not too wine stiff. So, I think the offering that people want, I've found, and mm. found that people seem to be coming back more for, is a more relaxed, um, discussional aspect with either myself or winemakers. So, during pandemic, you know, we did start doing wine zooms, and mm. they're incredibly popular because yeah, obviously people locked in and they didn't have much to do. You so, had,
1: you had Jimmy, yeah, I was part on of it. Jimmy, <laughs> <Did you laughs> have,
2: uh, hold on. Which one did you do, Jimmy?
0: I want to say that the
2: pikes. Pikes, yeah, yeah. yeah, we do. We did, a, yeah, did a, yeah. an amazing amount of pikes once, and because uh, they're, you know, they were yeah. good value, and the the wines are really great value. So, um, yeah, you know, that, that was an incredibly popular forum, and that, and again, as you saw on that podcast, oh, sorry, in the uh, Zoom, it was, a, you know, it's it's, it's a it is it's a relaxed atmosphere. It's with winemakers. Yeah. We don't get too technical, but if we want to, we can. Uh, um, you know, if people ask questions, yeah. and I think that's the same here. We we don't, you know. We were offered to be part of uh, what's called uh, uh, WSET, which is a formalised English training, and you know we didn't take it on because I'd rather do our sort of curated form, um, let's call it. Um, and we do these challenges like we do Grange, you know, Shiraz Challenge, we do Chardonnay Challenge, French Champagne Challenge. And then, you know, we do some technical things like the Pallet Trainer, which is sort of more a technical look at how your pallet's constructed, which is only one night. And then we do introductory courses and advanced courses and. It's, you know, it's a pretty full-on regime. It's a bit of a circus. And read master masterclasses, it's a bit of a circus. But it's good fun.
1: What are your kind of thoughts on storing wine? How important is it to have, like, wine in a cellar? My grandpa's quite, has an interesting view on it. He, he told me this story. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> there was some study in France where these guys put all these boxes of wine in the back of a van. Yep. And then they put the same wines in a cellar. Yep. And in the van, they drove it around Europe for you know a whole year basically yeah. through different climates over hills, um, and, and yeah. all that sort of stuff yeah. to basically have it so the wine's temperatures changing and, and all Fultured. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they seem to think that when they went to then do a blind tasting of it mm. a year later or whatever, mm. um, they couldn't tell much of a difference oh, that's interesting. so i mean i'm not sure if it's a true story but i mean it's yeah. it's interesting um, when you, if you hear something like that if you
2: think it is but i mean if you think of the same analogy it's a bit like you know mm. would you get a a carton of milk you know you've got a carton of milk you put it in your fridge putting it in putting it in your fridge delays the um the actual food product um mm. mo- what's called moving forward mm. um and and uh and then you know ultimately it goes off Mm. So does wine and mm. milk. Um, if you got that milk and then put it outside and on a day that was warm, you know, you can see what the effects mm-hmm. will be. Now maybe in an hour you wouldn't notice much difference, but you know, in six hours mm. you'd be in trouble trying to drink that milk. Mm. And um, you mm. know, so look, I think people forget about the fact that even though wine is in the bottle, it is a food product and it's a living breathing entity even in the bottle.
1: Mm. And
2: I think, you know, without getting too caught up in um, how to store, uh, you know, um, there's no doubt if you're going to collect good wine and fine wine and keep wine for a period, I think you've got to have proper cellaring conditions now, whether that's in an underground cellar, like we're sitting here at Armadale Cellars, or whether it's, you know, you know, Libu wine cabinet, um, that you can buy where you just, you know, literally dial up the temperature and the humidity and you can store it properly. Mm. And that's what a lot of people do, you know, because not have an underground cellar like this. Mm. Um... Yeah, you know, but uh, I think pandemic. I, we we know a lot of people build sellers. You know, because mm. I got asked for you know about them. We have a guy we refer people to. Um, and so you know, pretty simply that for me, um, you know, uh, is part of the again offering. If I can, mm. you know, steer them to Nigel, our fantastic seller builder, mm. um, then you know that that to me is what it's about. Um, uh, because I know that in the end they're going to want to be part of that putting wines in their
1: cellar.
2: Mm, mm. You know, I mean, I, I went and bought a telescope because I'm fascinated in the stars. I know stuff all about the stars. But I, was, you know, <laughs> I bought a telescope, you know, sort of offhand because it was at one of those places, you know, where you know, what is it? You, uh, people, people trade them in and get money for them or something. Mm. And it was sitting in the window of this place in Heidelberg when I go past to see my folks. And uh, it was sitting there for like six months. Mm. And, and then I, I wanted in one day, I thought, I'm going to have to have a look at this. And, and, of course, it kept going down in price and because uh, they couldn't get rid of it. And so I went in and I said to the guy, you know, um, you, know you want $799, you know, how good is it? And he said, oh, it's fantastic. And he said, you can have it for 400 <laughs> And of course, I just went, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, now uh, I then by extension ended up going to a um, telescope, another store, and buying DVDs and books. Mm. And so because I wanted to consume mm. the whole thing. Yeah. And I think people do that in mm. mind. You know, it's, it's a hobby, it's a fascination. So what
0: about – so just a bit of a harder question now, Phil. We've got to test you here. And, um, like, you know, the alcohol industry, mm. just like, you know, the gambling industry and mm. a whole lot of other things. Yep. Like, has its detractors, right? Sure. And, um, um, you know, you'd know – I mean, there's. I suppose would you say there could be a fine line between people who come and drink a lot of alcohol and drink maybe too much alcohol? And, like, is that – do you understand the dynamics? So do you have – how, would you would you have identified that in a customer, and if you did, how would you deal with it? Or it's, is that sort of an aspect of the business that you're really be interesting question? On?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. We've had a we've had a couple of over 25 years. You're going to meet obviously as I have, obviously as I have, a myriad of people who mm. um, and drink for you know, you would hope the 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 right reasons in terms of you know socialisation, mm. um, um, just enjoyment because in mm. the end it is a food. So it's part of the, for me, I consider wine as part of the food offering. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, I don't know the exact, um, I know the government put out a ruling, you know, of how many standard drinks a day they thought Mm. was sensible and then what was, you know, too much. And and of course, you know, you would obviously get medical opinions on how many glasses a day would be sensible. and, And I'd probably... Not probably. I would overstep that. I'm sure. I'm almost. I won't say I'm a high functioning alcoholic, but I'm certainly a. You know. I'm, and that's a joke, of course. But I'm. Uh, but pretty simply, <laughs> sure, I just don't qualify that um, is that. You know. Uh, you know. The reality is that. Um, you know. Yeah. There is a. There is a responsibility as a licensee of a license. Um, to make sure. You know. We, we'd. We'd always. You know. i like would never serve anyone who seemed, inebriated, or, um, had had too much of the good stuff, or. God forbid, bad stuff, and I hope we'd never sell any bad stuff to them. Um, you know, in when I managed pubs in my youth, I saw a lot of that in terms yeah. of people. Yeah, you know, that was part of my job I had to literally evict people who, um, you know, had had too much to drink. Thirty or thirty-five years ago, I think the whole social fabric has changed, and people have made been made aware. But you know, one story which I don't like telling, but it's an interesting one, is that you know I had a lady um, local who, who unbeknownst to us, had cancer, and she seemed to buy an an exorbitant amount of um, scotch a week from us. Like, mm. And it started mm. at two bottles a week. Mm. And I thought, well, that's, you know, you don't know who she's sharing it with. Mm. And then it got to about four bottles a week. Mm. Wow. And, you know, unbeknownst to us, of course, she was numbing herself uh, from the, the problem. Yeah, she was in pain.
1: Mm. Poor thing.
2: And uh love this lady. Mm. Uh, um, and, you know, it must feel terrible telling the story. But mm. uh, And then it got to a stage, I remember, actually, you know, when she got to like, I think it was like, one stage she ordered four bottles for the week. And so like you say, as a duty of care, I actually did the delivery myself, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. um, which
2: I don't do that much nowadays. Um, let a myriad of other people and, and couriers take care of, but you know, she's mm-hmm. local. And I went down, I, I took the four bottles and I said, I won't mention names, but I just mm-hmm. said, you know, hi, you know, um, you know, she knew me. Cause in the old days I used to take her one bottle, you know, cause I did everything, you know, mm-hmm. 25 years ago, I'd be you know, the delivery person, the marketer, mm-hmm. you name it. And so therefore, um, the interesting part was uh I said, you know, look you know, are you sharing this or what you know, how how are you taking part in this? And she said, I oh, know, I've got some friends that come around every week and we have a you know, a bit of a drink and she chuckled and mm. I said, Right and I said, You know, I'm concerned about you, how are you going? And she said, Well, I must confess, you know, you don't know this, but I'm you know, in late stages now of cancer mm. and that was really tough to talk mm. through with her. But, you know, again I felt um I felt pleased, let's say, that, you know, we were able to talk about it openly and um it was a, it was to her, look i think you know as a licensee i only do you know if these are all for you i prefer probably not to supply you and i think you need to take other you know other medical opinion and, mm. she, and she said no, i have and you know actually yeah you know, i am sharing this so look you know that's the problem with being a licensee and or trusting um you you know part of it is uh, making sure that you may, are aware. And that's obviously why we have now responsible service of alcohol courses that, you know, as a mm. licensee, I need to do every year in mm. and refresh and, and I think that's really smart and important um, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we never had that. And it was just relying on, you know, intuition and, you know, having some integrity about it. Um, mm. But, yeah, you know, at the same time, uh, um, now, you know, it's a very strict regime. And I have to be very careful about, you know, where people are at with that and, um I, I love, I love, I love as much as anyone having a good time and you know letting people have a, a good drink. Let's say, um, mm. but yeah, yeah, you know, I think that's where our society and you know, obviously the advent of drink driving, etc., and all those things mm. in the last two decades have made sure that we as a community understand the the problems. But sure, like any drug, and it is a legal drug, obviously. Um, that you're going to have some problems within the community. I'm not sure there's that many in the Land, but um, there mm. probably is. I mean, you know, you, I can't can't be unaware of the fact that, again, during pandemic, to state the obvious, people definitely, I know that because people talk to me about it and I reckon even I did. You know, my uptake um, was probably more than usual because, you, you know, at the end of the day, you you can get out and run to the gym or, you know, go and have a swim in the pool because mm. we we're in lockdown. And so, yeah, people were... The joke was, you know, all you're capable of is sitting on the couch watching Netflix and drinking a bottle. And that became pretty much, hmm. for a lot of people, the diet of the, yeah. of the of the you know, pandemic. And there'll probably be a lot written about that in the future. But for us, it was interesting, though. It tur- turbocharged a lot of local people who are rich and famous who normally would get in their Maserati and drive to the airport and not go to Armadale Sells. They were forced hmm. to get their daily walk-in. And they'd come past and go, oh, look, I knew you were here, but we'd never come in. Mm. Yeah, which is just staggering for me. Oh, you yeah, know, when yeah. you think I've been here two and a half decades, but not everyone gets a chance to, um, you know, to visit everything local. Yeah. And, you know, I can think of places near me, I live in St Kilda, and, are, you know, I've not visited every place near me in St Kilda, and Ackland Street, and Chapel Street. So, mm. you know, it's, it's, uh, but that forced everyone to sort of go past done look and let's say, well, the shop's open, we can go in and go, Yeah, you know, we're, we're an essential business, which I still find quite bizarre. You know, I mean, it, it, it talks and shows you how interesting Australian culture is, that, um, you know, we would keep us open as an essential business. It's almost an affirmation from the government to say, well... Yeah. Because there's so much revenue
1: from the taxation and, on And alcohol. I think that's a big part of it. It's that's, yeah. that's yeah.
2: obvious for the government that's maybe part of it. Yeah. When, that... when
1: you go on your trips overseas yes. and stuff, do you notice a distinct difference in, like, drinking cultures? Yeah, sure. No, like, I think... Do you think yeah. we do kind of have a lot of work to, to be done here in terms of even people's like maybe appreciation of, yep. of, of alcohol and stuff. Like I definitely feel like um, people from my generation, perhaps are more just like, Oh, whatever's cheapest. So I'll get a bag of goon and head <laughs> down <laughs> to the park. Maybe not yep. now, maybe when I was maybe yep. 17 or even underage, you know, yep. like 16. Yep. Um, <laughs> but, and I think, and then I think that kind of stems back mm. to kind of when we're younger, I think our parents are more maybe strict than, you know, mm. a family in France or Italy where they might, it's more kind of um, family history to maybe have the kid, you know, being involved in the drinking maybe earlier on, whereas sure. here it's yeah. kind of like a lot more placed. Yes. And because of that has like this um, bad image about it that that, that yeah, is, sure. that's attractive to teenagers is maybe the way to put it.
2: Look, the, the anti-alcohol lobby mm. have ensured that that's mm. been a topic in front of the government and uh, no doubt we're aghast with, you know, probably some of the figures that were, Happened because of the pandemic and the uptake of, mm. of people's imbibing. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, I'm not a, um, you know, I, I read because I'm an alumni of uh, the University of Adelaide, having passed what I did. Um, you know, I read certain things that come through, um, you know, in terms of alcohol. And, uh, I mean, to go back and answer, yeah, there's no doubt traveling the world, there's different cultures have different, you know, uh, approaches, let's call it, to alcohol. Mm. Um, and, you know, Rightly or wrongly, I mean, again, you got to remember, Australians' intake is decent, but it's not, not near as much as some European countries. Yeah, important. and and they would consider it part of the food diet. I mean, it's not unusual <laughs> yeah. for French country mm. workers to sit on the side of the road at ten thirty, and open up a you know a, mm. a flag a carafe of rosé or you know mm. a bottle of rosé, share it with their compadres who are working with a baguette, and yet mm. you know if I. If you came here at ten thirty in the morning, I said, "Let's have a rosé." feels eh? <laughs> feels better on the drink. What's going on? You know, like. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know, again, yeah. that's normality, really. In, in, not that every French person would do that, but but there's something in that though, yeah, because yeah.
1: in like in the Mediterranean, like I I don't know if you know, I have a background in nutrition, right? Yeah. And the Mediterranean diet is considered Correct. you know the best diet to have, and yeah. and the people in the Mediterranean, it's it's not uncommon for them to have no. at least one or two glasses of red every, every day. Absolutely. And yet, you yeah. know, they're living, you know, longer than mm. more people probably perhaps in these other Western mm. countries. Oh, I think... like I, do, do, you, yeah. do you believe in that phenomenon, oh, that red just, wine's like a healthier oh, option I, to having, you know,
2: beers all day or Absolutely. Or yeah, I've read so many <laughs> articles about the health benefits of, let's like, say, one or two glasses mm. a day. Um, you know, it's a very difficult one to prove exactly what the tipping point, and that would depend physiologically on the makeup of the people. Um, we're talking about so um, the um, uh, you know reality dictates that um, uh, you know there's going to be always exceptions to a rule and there's always going to be you know case studies of people who are different to what the norm is but I think there's no doubt that one or two glasses of wine has proven over. Probably thousands of years, and you know, the Bible, Bible um, you know, put <laughs> yes, it forward. James, I mean, I'm, I'm an old Catholic, uh, Christian Brothers Boy, <laughs> yeah. so you know, and I, you know, so I know there's a, mm. an absolute frightful array of uh, references of wine in the Bible, and and obviously, um, you know, I'd love to be able to turn water to wine, God bless Jesus, but um, <laughs> but you know, but reality dictates that, um, that you know, uh, I think it, it is definitely right that you know, there's so many benefits to wine, and I mean, you know. You mentioned earlier about competitors. I'm not afraid to, you know. mention. <laughs> yeah, There's obviously two you know, Coles and Woolworths, but um, part of uh, Woolworths offering is Dan Murphy, and Dan Murphy was obviously actually a person at one stage, and no longer. Uh, he's uh, not no longer on planet Earth. He's in the vineyard in the sky. <laughs> but you know, I met Dan, and Dan wrote some really interesting books about wine that how wine would give temperance and yeah. and um, you know and calmness to people. And obviously, that was in moderation. So the key for me, mm. um, I mean, looking at my body, you can see I'm not. I maybe haven't learned moderation exactly yet, <laughs> but um, you know, meaning mm. there's no doubt for me, moderation is the key to it. You know, in all aspects of life, and I think one or two glasses of wine is not mm. not silly. But um, mm. again, like any any hobby or any fascination, or when you run something with gusto, sometimes you can overconsume it, and uh, literally and metaphorically. So the, the tough part for someone like me, who's literally you know, the fat kid in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory um, <laughs> is that how do you resist from not just making it too, you know? People like me have to be careful that it doesn't consume their life. I mean, you know, oh,
1: what, what sort of things can you do to, to mm. stop just from consuming your life? Yes. Like, what is there? Ser- is there certain weeks people are like, okay, I've had a big week
2: next week, I'm gonna take Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesday off from, from having yeah. the reds? Or yeah, there are people who say, I've had or- a big life, but the um, nah, there's, um yeah, no, there's again, I mean, you know, I've got a I've had to put a number of things in place and I'm by far perfect, but not by, yeah, by far not perfect, but, um, you know, I take uh brockers most days to offset the depletion of vitamin B and, um, also the, um, uh, basically, you know, other, yeah you know, I drink lots of water, um, so that, you know, basically that offsets the dehydration aspect. Um, and, and you know that's part of it um mm. you know and i think uh for me i have to I quite often teach in wine courses are uh, very very smart to um you know uh, when you get home have a glass of chilled water
0: yeah.
2: rather than get you know open a bottle of riesling or chablis mm. and um you know you're straight into it um and you're drinking for thirst not um not um uh not yeah, you've got to watch that you're not drinking for thirst rather than enjoyment, and I think that's part of you know uh, where wine can be. Again, you know, wine's one of those things that once you drink more of it, you loosen up, so to speak, and you think this is great. I'm going to drink more. To make this. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be even better night with Jimmy. And you
0: know, <laughs> uh, but
2: in the end, you, you've got to be, I think, socially responsible, and
0: everyone's mm. to be aware of that. Isn't it, isn't it great we're here, Phil, and there's a lot of activity going on in the shop? Right? There so is. Isn't, it, we're here. <laughs> isn't this wonderful?
2: Good for, fun. Good,
0: good for business. There's phones ringing.
2: There's people going everywhere. That's <laughs> <laughs> all
0: fun. Yeah. So um don't want to take up too much of your time. A few more questions. Getting back to um, the – there's a phone going – people are keen to get their phone, out. they, Phil? But um, <laughs> if we're thinking about the Australian wine industry, for example, Yes. so do you, would you really recommend people to drink, you know, to – support um, small wineries or, um, you know, is that something you consciously try and do? Or
2: Yeah, I think um, we've always been on the boutique side and, uh, and you know, uh, most of the people that we've got what I call close relationships with would be called small boutique wineries. There's still a place that I have a respect for, you know, the large, um, large suppliers. But again, go back to that um, Michael Porter theory of, I think now we're in a really interesting stage for the industry where People who are at a certain size are a bit stuck in the middle and, Mm. you know, with the whole China dilemma of export and um, that's really hurt certain medium-sized companies more so than the big Goliaths. Mm. Um, You know, the big Goliaths always tend to get through anything because they can just, you know, literally mobilise resources into a certain area or, you know, certain markets. But, um, you know, mid-sized ones are the ones that have hurt, you know. But then, you know, I think people just got to find a different way to twist and turn. I've always thought, I think the creativity and the most interesting, dynamic, exciting things come out of the very small boutique players that Mm -hmm. tend to, you know, and again, this country's been incredible uh, for having, um, you know, places and wineries that have, uh, that, you know, they don't, they're not restricted like France are by the government, you know, to say, well, if you're in Bordeaux, you have have to make these grapes, you know, I have to have these grapes to make this wine. And. They are hemmed in a bit you know and that's part of the problem uh, for the old world uh, france certainly Spain, germany etc they're they're dictated to in a way uh, whereas australia it's completely so fair you know you can do anything you want you can grow riesling zinfandel nebbiolo blends um you know that a natural wine is <laughs> on kangaroo island and as long as you pay your mm. best no one cares mm. I mean, so mm. so that that leads to a creativity part you just got to watch the creativity is not too ridiculous so i've kind of had a bit of
1: experience working in hospitality I definitely noticed that the whole sort of hospitality industry compared to other industries kind of, um, I think, has more like sort of drug problems and, and stuff like that. And I was wondering what sort of your experience perhaps was, you know, growing up in hospitality. And
2: oh, I could fill you ten podcasts <laughs> full of, but I've got more stories than, and, you know, I managed a pub opposite mm. um, the major prison in this um, mm. state, you know, which was Petridge at the time. Um, which you know had all the people, the characters out of Underbelly who drank there, and so you know that was absolutely intriguing. You know I used to run this you know night spot in Preston It um, was part of the same chain of hotels that had you know two thousand screaming kids on a Saturday night. It was you know, a bit like the Wild West, and I'd have a team of um, bouncers they were called they were security <laughs> men um, who you know it was just complete madness. Um, I, you know uh, yet you know I've hosted some of the you know, most bizarre, you know, beautiful wine dinners with um, high-end clients and with the most beautiful uh, wines, you know, from around the world in some of the most exotic locations. I've got a certain client who takes me away every couple of years on their sort of a corporate run, let's call it, to, um, you know, basically latch up with some different friends from around planet Earth, and they have these high-end dinners that I help curate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've seen all sorts of aspects from one, you know, I've done the barman thing when mm-hmm. I was in pubs and served, you know, plenty of pots um and drank you know my little ponies with uh people as i say to to uh congratulate them for being a good customer during the week but the truth were just you know (laughs) probably part of the whole socialization of australian fabric because the pub was a meeting place Mm. and you know it's it's sort of not now i mean Mm. you know again so i think australia is a and again pandemics change things a bit Mm -hmm. i mean i Get a lot of people telling me now they're doing a lot more stuff at home mm. because they've discovered the fact that yeah they, they spent time cooking yeah. uh, and mm. they took the time to yeah you know, they realized that wine at restaurants can be you know xy um mm. and and so it should though because you know restaurants obviously put a lot of money into their mm. um you know their rent and their staff and their white linen and all the things that matter to give you that experience you know um but people have discovered to some extent that they can potentially replicate the, the same experience maybe at home but Obviously, you know, I think to have someone like Jacques Pepin cook for you, and uh, you know, uh-huh. as I've had many times, um, and you know, some some great chefs around Melbourne and around the world is the ultimate for me. As you can see, I've made a good uh, good fist of uh, of enjoying far too many meals, and uh, you know, I'm, again, fortunate that I do love what I do.
1: Mm.
0: What about um, another question? Mm. Quite interested in sort of renewable energy and changing climates and things like this what do you think is changing the climate climate change
2: having an effect on the industry either? yeah it is it's going to be a huge factor i mean look climate change is affecting anyone who doesn't think it's <laughs> it's not going to affect you know, so <laughs> many things and mm-hmm. i can't believe there are people who don't believe in climate change but um i think yeah there's no doubt through history there's been obvious times of climate change in all areas around the world but um uh, reality dictates that um, we are in a very interesting stage now, where there's, you know, literally just too many people on planet Earth, and we're obviously, obviously warming up the planet, and therefore things change and um, mm-hmm. weather cycles and patterns and whatever. And because of that, um, in the end, wine production is farming, and because of those changing weather patterns, it's going to severely affect how you know people sort of forget about when they go to a winery cellar door, how you know that person maybe if their boutique have killed themselves literally to get you know that wine in the bottle to present mm. and then people sort of you know pretty blase at cellar door might say yeah oh, yeah not quite me i'm not, not wrapped in that one Yeah, you know, which is really heartbreaking for someone yeah. behind the jump who may have mm. you know put all that sweat and effort mm. into producing a bottle but um and that's why i think you've got to be very considerate when you're tasting somebody's wine mm. um you know, you're almost talking about their baby um mm. so uh but having said that um to go back to the real question there's no doubt that you know, all the winemakers tell me they're seeing fluctuations in picking times, um, you know, disease pressures. Um, and, you know, some grapes uh, lend themselves. Pinot's one of the great examples that, you know, it's a, it's a heartbreaking grape and, and you know, uh, weather patterns and uh, disease pressure can really, you know, make it incredibly hard to grow up successfully. So hmm. um, there's absolutely no doubt that's going to play a big factor. And you're going to see certain regions, if they don't spend the time and effort and therefore money, because they'll have to, you know, deploy resources and people and things to help the vi- you know, the canopy and, and keep the fruit sound. If they don't spend that money, um, you know, they're not going to produce great wine. And mm-hmm. so if they don't do that, they're going, going to lose integrity over time and that's going to be a real critical aspect.
1: And are you sort of seeing more opportunities in, in somewhere like Tassie where – they would have perhaps not had the, the best climate for a lot of
2: great... Tassie's already the Gold Rush area, I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Col River Valley, which is just outside of yeah. Hobart, is almost like the place, it seems like, the you know, where the gold rushes is um, to grow, you know, mm-hmm. vines. And, you know, certain companies like Brown Brothers, who started obviously Northern Victoria, mm-hmm. have, you know, over a decade ago decided to invest in Tasmania knowing we would have changes. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. very smart by them. Mm, um, mm. and you know uh, Sean Smith you know, in the Adelaide Hills also cool climate but you know have invested in Tollbutton vineyard in Tasmania and um, so there's going to be a number of examples of people going either south in the southern hemisphere or north in the northern hemisphere
1: mm. to
2: make sure that they um, you know can continue their legacy um, to some degree uh, because again to state the obvious the global warming aspect is mm. going to change certain areas and I think you know the, the question would have to be raised you know is barossa
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know, in the flats you know sustainable at the price ranges um you know in say 10 years you know if mm. uh it gets so hot you know they're going to literally have to pick so early and there's going to be such a short window of opportunity and you know, it's mm. it's really puts pressure on the winery and the resources as
1: and so we've spoken about the future of the global sort of climate and where that's all heading. What what, what about for you? What's the future for kind of um, Armadale wine sellers? Um, yeah, well, what plans do you have? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a great question. I, I don't have any succession plan, which is a bit of a, a bit of a worry. But um, to some degree. But yeah, uh, you know, look uh, again. I'm I feel very fortunate. I love what I do. I'm not I'm not um, deluded by the fact. I don't think I'm. I you know I, I know people may regard this as a fantastic wine um place to come and you know i'd like to think i'm part of that and uh and, and i'm sure part of it is the fact that a lot of the goodwill is in myself as an operator mm. which is always a slight dilemma for them mm. selling it yeah. and I, but i've never had a want to sell it so because mm. you know why would you give up what you love doing but mm. but um you know the, the smart supposed business sensible thing would be to um you know hand past the baton at some stage and uh, as my ninety four year old father says, Life is timing, the rest is bullshit. You know, that's true that, you know, sometimes it's whether you think this is a good time to do it and uh, economically or because someone's offered you um, a price or whatever. You know, we've had a couple of times where um, people of one of the chains came here once and offered me and we let them have a look around but I just thought, you know what, I just don't wanna you know, I don't I didn't want to give it up at that stage and I you know I knew there'd be a million hoops I'd have to, you know, jump through to satisfy them and I thought, no. Nah. Um, so look, you know, if someone came and offered me millions and millions of, mm. to walk and, or, you know, to maybe manage it for them, sure, I'd possibly consider it. But, you know, for me, I'm just, again, fortunate that I do what I do. I reckon I've got another maybe 10 years, if I'm lucky, um, where, you know, before I um, think I'm getting too old and and uh, whatever to do this. But, you know, again, it's, it's great to be, I think, you feel younger when you're around younger people who work for you. Mm. Um, but we've got you know, a varying amount of age groups here that work here, and um, you know, warehouse guys just turned 70, and uh, and he's in such he's in far better physical nick than I am, which is terrible a little bit. But he, you know, but that, that to me is um, part of why, yeah, I don't have any uh, real, except for the fact of you know delivering good product and wanting to make sure that we still have a good offering and that you know we keep our integrity and our prestige.
0: Mm. I give, um, yeah, kudos to uh, Josh, showed us around earlier. Yep,
2: got it. And he,
0: he got the money, you know, he was spot on with the first drink on Christmas Day. Yep. He said sparkling sugar. Is that right? How funny. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, that's a great credit to you and all the staff seem really happy, which I always look, love to see. So just our final question, Juan and I are passionate about exploring ways to help people with the mental health, as we've spoken about just before. Sure. And as we said, COVID-19 has been a tough time for many. It has. So as a business owner, and as you say, you're balancing all these balls at, balls at once, mm-hmm. what's your advice for our listeners in terms of managing your health and your well-being, but also high-performing like you are, you know, and, and really living your best life?
2: Like yeah. yeah, it's that's- interesting. I have, you know, some of the young ones that, that work here are amazed at my um, continuing stamina, if that's the term, of, you know, rolling up day after day and event after event and and, you know, even if I've had a heavy night and they know, like tonight, you know, if my friend wins this award, we'll go out on the town, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but I'll have to, I'll do a Shreve's challenge tomorrow night, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've actually going to go to a charity lunch tomorrow in between. And, but I won't go silly, you know. I'll, I, I think, you know, the moderation, uh, not that I'm the greatest uh, uh, example of moderation, my doctor would uh, tell you otherwise in some respects. But, you know, we're working on that. And, um, in terms of eating and drinking and enjoying life too much i think part of it is um love what you do yeah. and also um yeah moderation is a key and i think you've got to make sure you give time out for yourself i'm probably guilty of um of not even spending enough time on myself so i mm. had a really interesting discussion with a friend yesterday who's mm. absolutely insistent that i go to a health farm with her in um, march next year uh, in queensland to take a week off wine and um, indulgent food, etc. Which for me, a week without wine is almost, you know, I can't even think about it. Yeah, you know, like I, mm. you know, for me, if I have more than a, two days off of wine, I mm. feel like there's something missing in my life mm. uh, because it's a natural extension. I, you know, if I, if I, as I did last night, got home and you know we'd had this already dinner, but I, I didn't, I was presenting the whole thing, so I didn't really eat. Mm. So I got home and I had this uh, lovely prepared. Chicken Parmigiana, doesn't sound that uh, salubrious, does it? But from Canning's, which is a great butcher's up at uh, up here. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, threw that in the oven, put on my uh, put on stand to watch the series that I'm watching, and and then by extension, you know, got a glass of chardonnay out because I just thought, well, you know, as we said, I love chardonnay, and and, you know, sure, it wasn't about everything matching food and drink-wise, but I I just consider wine part of the meal offering so distinctly Mm -hmm. that it's hard for me not to have wine. Mm. Albeit, you know, I, only, I made sure I had one glass. It was a fairly big glass, but I had one. <laughs> I had one, had, a, had one glass, and uh, that was what that was my uh, that was my night last night. But um, you know, it is about. Uh, I think you know, understanding. I mean, in the wine industry, especially, it's understanding that you know, yes, yeah, uh, wine has got alcohol, and it's a drug, and too much of it can hurt you. It's a toxin. If you have too much of it, it'll hurt you. Everyone's been guilty of that with a hangover. But mm. um, you know, I think uh, yeah yeah you know, there is a sensibility aspect that you must keep in check and i think the moderation parts a big factor but also um you know the, i think also balance you know we, in when we teach wine we talk about the balance within wine same within your life you've got to have a balance and you know again mm. i've been probably guilty of not looking after myself and looking after everyone else and mm. that's the that, that's really yes it's a hospitality isn't it um mm. if you think about it logically and you know whether it's a mm. Caulfield race course you know you you know, you want to make sure they get their, you know, drink on time and that it's served them the minute because they're there to have fun. Yeah, exactly. You're an extension of that. You know, that's why you're part of what's called hospitality. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I've always, you know, considered myself a very distinct, you know, advocate and champion of hospitality because I love seeing people enjoy themselves. There's nothing, you know, better for me than at the end of a forum when people, you know, clap and say, "Oh, that was great fun, Phil." You know, as you know, I see them out You know, we love that. We'll come back for another challenge or. You know, I had so many people last night at the thing we were at, the function, come up to me and say, we, you know, because we did something like 65 Zooms over the pandemic, which is an enormous amount. And um, I had some people come up and say, yeah, we just lived for that dream. And they mm-hmm. wanted to thank me distinctly. You know, that was really humbling. I felt really pleased that I'd offered people something in a time that was bloody hard. And, you know, I seriously had like six people come up to me. It was just, it was just flabbergasted, actually. And, you know, for me, I was doing what I loved. You know, I, I felt very, very fortunate that during what was easily, you know, my lifetime and most people's mm. lifetimes, obviously, till now, one of the hardest times mm. that I could offer some enjoyment, you know, and, and relief, let's call it, from, from the, the hardship of what was happening.
1: Mm. Well, what what a great way to sort of finish, and, and you, sh- you share a great example for our listeners that you can really work to live. To work um, but yeah, some great messages there for people in, you know, pursuing your passion and, and building an empire around it, really, and making it your life lifestyle. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure, guys! Yeah,
2: we'll be doing more walks at the Podcast.
0: Hey Ron, there was such a great feel with that chat, wasn't it? The ambience, sitting downstairs in the wine cellar, surrounded by the wine boxes, maps of all the regions the sitting up of the tasting glasses for the, for the event that night just set the scene
1: superbly I thought. You're not wrong mate, the cellar is a must-see place for people in Melbourne. Phil said he promised himself he wouldn't get stuck in the middle in terms of quality and I can definitely assure you he hasn't and I'm a bit like Phil in a sense that I'm a perfectionist myself. And I can emphasize what he said about if you're going to start something like a business then go for it 100% and make it the best possible quality and I also loved how he channeled Richard Branson he said you want to be in the 3% of people who love what they do and Phil said he was one of those
0: yeah exactly It was a bit similar to what Ken and Paula said, really, in regards to, like, we just got to find that thing that you've got passion for and then go for it. I enjoyed it when Phil said you should literally and metaphorically consume your passion. I really enjoyed that advice and I try to do that with my day job in renewable energy. It's also a bit like us with the coffee, I guess. He gave me that Aeropress and that's allowed me to really mix up my home coffee selection the stovetop and the aero Press and you know I know a lot more about coffee now
1: Jimmy I hate to say it but I think your coffee palette still has a long way to go and not to mention your milk frothing as well but I reckon you're on track to be a brewster maybe one day and getting back to Phil I also loved how he said he set out to create relationship style business my father has a business himself and I know he places a lot of emphasis on customer relationships and the advice he gave about the incredible lengths he goes to to build a database and build rapport with customers. You know, that's definitely something that will stay with me.
0: Yeah, we also posed a few harder questions to Phil, didn't we, in terms of like people who might struggle with alcohol. I'm sort of quite lucky one. I love a drink for sure, but I'm also able to say no when I need to and I realise that I'm just fortunate to be like that. As Phil said, everything in moderation is the key. So I guess if either of us was to know someone who struggles a bit with drinking, I recommend that we should just have that conversation with them a little bit like Phil did with the person in the story and encouraging them to seek a bit of help.
1: Yeah, so true mate. It was really nice to hear and I personally went through a bit of a rough patch myself. And I was quite lucky to have the people I did around me and those conversations I had, I'll forever be grateful for. And the other thing I really enjoyed was Phil talking about how COVID made a lot of people realize that they can recreate that restaurant experience from home. And I've definitely found I've been spending more time at home than I did pre-lockdown. What about you, Jim? Have you been at home a bit more, do you reckon, or?
0: Mm, Yeah, agreed, Ron, to an extent. Uh, I think what i found is that we go out at different times of day so a lot of my friends will meet up for lunch and then we'll have, have a few drinks or whatever in the afternoon and then we'll be home like relatively early so that's that's sort of what I've noticed but maybe it's just my age actually.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't reckon like all my mates we still catch up early in the afternoon for a few years these
0: days so definitely not the age. I think another part of it actually wrong is people are getting pretty concerned about being caught at an exposure site uh, I've got two friends and both their partners were at this event last week that I was supposed to go to but didn't and um, uh, they, they both caught the virus there so now you've got the, these two couples one of them self isolating in a room at their apartments And, you know, it's it's actually just a pretty crazy situation, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's a bit tricky, isn't it? I've been quite lucky that I've never caught the virus myself, though I would be kind of keen. Um, i found that it'd be kind of nice in a way to have some self-isolation to kind of catch up on life admin.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's just so much to do, isn't there? It's a bit like starting this podcast, really. And I guess getting back to Phil, as he said, to get Armadale Salad started to the state where it is today he had to put in so much time and effort and to the extent that Phil even said he even enjoys life a bit too much so I was really pleased to hear in Phil's interview that he's got that trip booked into Queensland to get some downtime. He also said actually that it's very difficult to be an expert or even have the time to do everything so it's really critical to get those good people
1: on board early who who you can form a team around. Absolutely, Jim. And Phil's episode was a great one. And I just want to lastly mention our cameraman that we were able to get down to come there. Adam, he was you know really helpful in getting some great photos that everyone will hopefully be able to see on our social media. So, Jimmy, who do we have next week? Uh,
0: Ronnie. Next week we'll be releasing our Christmas special. And you know it's a great it's a great time of like joy and fun. Uh, for people who are a little bit more fortunate. But it's also a time we should think about people who are not in as good a situation. And so we decided that we'd showcase an organisation called the Mission to Seafarers here in Melbourne. They look after the workers on merchant ships and cruise ships. And these people actually can sometimes be in a very difficult situation. They can be away from home for months on end. And so what the mission provides is somewhere in Melbourne Uh, where they can come and just catch up on things, call home, uh, you know, just sit down and have a chat. It's a really great place. Here's a preview of our chat with Sue Dight, who is CEO of The Mission. The
1: shipping company will abandon the ship. They will stop paying seafarers, they'll stop supplying the ships. So they've got no food, no fuel, nothing to actually allow them to come ashore or go home. And then, because of the way maritime law is set up, you cannot leave and a ship and kill the captain. Re- only recently, uh, within the last 12 months, there was a ship's captain who had been aboard an abandoned for four years. He was living alone on that ship for nearly four years. And the mission over there were able to supply food and water and generators and things like that, fuel for a generator. Because otherwise he was we know of crews that have been living on EF If you don't want to miss that episode, check out our website theyarn.org.au, and subscribe to our newsletter so you will always be up to date with our releases. Lastly, if you really enjoyed this episode here at the Yarn, we would appreciate if you subscribe and leave five star feedback on your favourite podcast platform. Those are the two best ways to support us to keep the lights on and the podcast coming.
0: And as always, feel free to send us an email, podcast at the yarn.org.au. We love hearing from you.